This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 13th of August 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we hear from Ruth Borthwick, who's the chair of English Pen, about the attack on writer Salman Rushdie. The journalist Andrew Walker will be here to take us through the day's papers, and Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller will bring us this week's What We Learned. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. First, though, here are the headlines. Salman Rushdie, the Indian-born novelist who spent years in hiding after Iran urged Muslims to kill him because of his writing, was stabbed on stage at a lecture in New York State on Friday and airlifted to hospital. Rushdie will likely lose an eye and suffered severed nerves in an arm and damage to his liver, his agent said, adding that Rushdie was on a ventilator. New York State police have named a 24-year-old Hadi Matar as the suspect in the stabbing. The attack has been condemned by writers and politicians around the world as an assault on the freedom of expression. FBI agents in this week's search of former US President Donald Trump's Florida home removed 11 sets of classified documents, including some marked as top secret, the Justice Department said on Friday, whilst also disclosing it had probable cause to conduct the search based on possible Espionage Act violations. Trump has not yet been charged with any wrongdoing and it remains unclear whether any charges would be brought. And the Secretary-General of Kenya's governing party has said there was election rigging fueling public anxiety as media outlets significantly slowed down their unofficial tallies from Tuesday's tight presidential vote between former political prisoner and veteran opposition leader Raila Odinga and Deputy President William Ruto. Only the Electoral Commission is authorised to declare a winner, but the tallies done by media were seen as a bulwark against the kind of rigging allegations that have previously sparked violence. More than 1,200 people were killed after the 2007 elections and more than 100 after the 2017 elections. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, as we heard in the headlines, the award-winning writer Salman Rushdie has been stabbed on stage at an event in New York State. Rushdie was formerly the president of PEN America, the writer's human rights organisation. And I'm joined now by Ruth Borthwick, who's the current chair of sister organisation English PEN. Uh, Ruth, thanks very much for, for joining us. How has English PEN responded to this shocking event? Well, obviously, we're incredibly... Um uh, agonised um, about this um, this event. Um, first of all, we're thinking about um, Salman's family and immediate friends um, who must be absolutely, you know, shocked and horrified. But also, <clears throat> I think it um, once again it shows just how vulnerable writers are um, to um, attack for just for doing their job. I mean, he was on stage. Um, at an event um, in Pennsylvania where um, he had absolute um, right to be and for the public to be there in order to talk with him about writing literature ideas and the things that really matter to people who are interested in 
in writing and, and, and it's a shocking and terrible thing that it's not a he's not able to be uh, or anyone isn't able to um, go about their business without fear of attack. Mm. Uh, of course, the original fatwa was proclaimed over 30 years ago uh, and and then relaxed somewhat at, at that time. Someone felt that he could actually come out of hiding. He spent more than 10 years uh, very much under the radar. Um, it's shocking that, that so long after the event, this should happen. But I wonder if we looked at this in the context of, of today and the rise of social media, how different it would be at that time back in, in 88, 89. Of course, there, there was no social media. And yet the story went around the world. Uh, these days, of course, it would be entirely different. Yes, this is something that um, we were reflecting on this morning, uh, how... Um, even though the fatwa was um, uh, announced in uh, 1988, a long time before the age of this attacker, who is apparently 24, um, how um, this, um, this information and this uh, fatwa hanging over a writer can still be, can still have um, currency uh, in, in uh, the world. Um, Nowadays, obviously, <clears throat> we wouldn't want to think about what the immediate um, responses would be to such a thing because of social media. Um, it seems to me that it's it, it would be much more um, uh, <clears throat> an immediate response, if you like. But, uh, but I find it, uh, you know, deeply depressing that even though... Uh, this, you know, we're so far away from that period, 1988, that this has still got currency. And that I think I feel that is very shocking. Um, there's a misunderstanding about what the Satanic Verses was about in the first place, because it was a critique of Thatcher's Britain and its treatment of immigrants. And that has been a theme that Rushdie has uh, come back to again and again in his writing. And, and that's what makes his work uh, for 20th, 21st century uh, Britain um, so engaging and significant because he has intelligent and articulate um, comments to make on the role of the immigrant in this country. Uh, and those are the things that you know, we, besides his incredible imagination, that we as readers value him for. Mm. Of course, we know that this fatwa was opposed by the majority of the Muslim world. Uh, Rushdie was supported by a great many Muslim writers. How dangerous is it that this becomes yet another excuse for Islamophobia? And what can we do to stop this happening? Well, that's, um, that's a very difficult um, issue, but I suppose... One thing I'd say is that this attacker, as with any lone attackers, is seeking individual notoriety. And so therefore, um, I suppose the best way of responding to that is to, to make that point, you know, that this is one individual acting on their own. Um, and also to make the point that there are many writers in uh, the Islamic and uh, Muslim world who themselves um, are uh, under attack and censorship um, for trying to um, express themselves and have freedom of expression. So it's not unique uh, to, um, to the Western world.
Mm. Finally, how do you think this will impact writers around the world? Will we see people choosing their words more carefully? Well, I hope not. Um, but the experience of English pen has been um, in this in this business for a hundred years, um, and it still seems um, that uh, there's more work than ever to do to defend the freedom of expression for writers in this world, which seems to be. Um, increasingly run by autocratic um, dictatorships um, and extreme right-wing uh, countries. So um, I think that uh, if you're a writer, you will always do what you want to do, ultimately, um, no matter what the, the threat and jeopardy. Um, and we, everybody who believes in freedom of expression, has to support that. Absolutely. Ruth, thank you very much indeed. That's Ruth Borthwick of English Pen. And uh, English Pen is in fact open to non-writers too. If you would like to support the work of the organisation and of freedom of expression for writers uh, and journalists around the world, do head to the English Pen website uh, where you can join up and be a part of that struggle. You're listening to Monocle 24. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Andrew Walker, who's a journalist and a former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. Andrew, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, we were just talking to Ruth Borthwick there about Salman Rushdie. Uh, how are the papers dealing with this? Because, of course, it is yeah. front-page news across the world today. Yes, indeed. Um, in the British papers, it's for the most part, it's actually the lead front-page story. Um, some of the American ones, it's well, it's there on the front, but not necessarily the lead. They've also um, they've, they've got particular preoccupations with, um, um, with, with investigations into the former president, Donald Trump. Um, so... Th- for the most part, the re- the coverage has been about reporting the events, and because it was such a, a busy event that um, that the attack took place at, there's there's a lot of eyewitness testimony about the hideous nature of the of the attack. Um, We've also got some papers reporting some of the tributes that have been coming in to, um, to Salman Rushdie. Uh, the Guardian, for example, in Britain talks about um, a, um, a, a very uh, a f- full-throated, um, supportive tweet from President Macron of France and some comments from some other writers. Um, um, uh, <laughs> um, um, Nigella Lawson um, and, uh, and and some novelists who've also indicated their uh, their admiration of him and hope that he will he will pull through this. Uh, there's a little bit of a hint, I think, that some um, papers may take the opportunity that some um, anti-Islamic um, forces might take the opportunity to, um, to to push their agenda, but so far. Only, uh, only I've seen only two, only one or two slight hints of that, but um, that may be coming in due course. Mm. And of course, we're looking also at Iranian, Iranian ultra conservative newspapers. Mm. Uh, one in particular, Kairan, on Saturday hailed the man who stabbed Rushdie uh, and said, "Bravo to this courageous and duty conscious man who attacked the apostate and dep- and depraved uh, Salman Rushdie in New York." I mean, some some truly horrible stuff coming out yeah. there too. Um, but but overwhelming support. And, of course, people just saying that this cannot be allowed uh, to, to, A, influence Islamophobia uh, and, and B, to, to gag writers. Yes, indeed. And it is... Some of the papers have noted, um, including, for example, I have here the Financial Times, the, um, the, the subject matter of the event that 
um, Salman Rushdie was speaking at. And there is a hideous irony in that. It was, um, it's been described by the organisers as a discussion about the US as asylum for writers and other artists in exile and as a home for freedom of creative expression. Now, of course, Salman Rushdie had... Um, for many years taken a more relaxed attitude to his own personal security, having been in hiding in the early stages after the fatwa. Um, and uh, there is this, it, it is really is, quite, as I say, a, a ghastly irony that this attack took place, um, given that he was um, using the opportunity to um, to exercise his own freedom of expression, specifically at an event um, designed to look at that issue. Mm. And, I mean, just three three months ago or so, Rushdie was at the Penn World Voices Festival, uh, at which he said, a poem cannot stop a bullet, a novel can't defuse a bomb, but we are not helpless. We can sing the truth and name the liars. As he has been doing for many years, um, and... Sadly, as he, it, it does indeed show that um, it couldn't stop the knife in this case. The, the the power of the word couldn't stop the knife. But he 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 continued to to express himself freely for for many years before mm. he was before the this this ghastly attacker finally caught up with him. Well, we're hoping, of course, that he will continue indeed absolutely to, to express himself. And and just a sort of final word from somebody who who's a close friend of his, Kathy Lett, who recalls sort of him. She she she, she writes, uh, yes, he's revered the world over as a brilliant writer and a fearless champion of freedom of speech but to us his pals he's also our beloved funny kind charming mischievous loving and loyal cherished friend she talks about her her daughter when when a small mm-hmm. child painting his toenails and him just <laughs> allowing that to happen and we do hope that he's I hope we can have more of that absolutely for, for, for him and his friends in the future Andrew, let's move on now to the other huge story that's dominating worldwide headlines, and this is the FBI's raid on mm. Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and it's quite, quite extraordinary that Trump is now saying that these documents were declassified, uh, but that they were also planted by the FBI. How he could have, how those two <laughs> statements marry up, I'm not quite sure. Um, and, and, of course, the declassification is something that he claims was his own action. He was the person who, who did the declassification. There, it, it, it is utterly extraordinary um uh, uh, and of course this this is the is the lead story on the in the wall street journal the new york times various aspects um of it um there are also i mean it's been picked up around the world as well um the sydney morning herald for example is um is picking up some of the political fallout from it the potential um well if i suspect it's more than potential already for for these raids to um uh, to 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 um, to encourage Trump supporters. Certainly, Mr. Trump has been arguing that this was a politically motivated um, raid on his property, and um, and it certainly fans the flames of those who believe that the Justice Department and the new administration are using their powers to um, uh, to to um, to. to to, to undermine Mr. Trump's potential position as a as a candidate um, the next time the presidency is up for, for election. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if he speaks German, but he certainly will now <laughs> understand what schadenfreude means. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I hope Hillary Clinton's having a good weekend. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> um, it's quite, quite an extraordinary story. And of course, we will be following this very carefully and, and uh, uh, as it develops, as I'm sure it will over the next uh, days and weeks. Uh, climate of course, is the other huge, huge story. Yeah. Now, here in Britain, we've been having the really extreme heat yeah. wave uh, and there's a big rain.
rains predicted uh, for, for next week. Interesting experiment that we've been seeing is that if we have big rain after a long period of mm-hmm. dryness, that water is not absorbed into no, the soil. No, it runs off and a lot of it just runs off. And yeah. so, of course, we're now braced for flooding. Indeed we are. And there is a... The, um, the Los Angeles Times has a particular piece looking at this um, uh, prompted by a report uh, from some scientists at University of California at Los Angeles warning that the US really could be facing something a lot... California in particular could be facing something along precisely these lines. California is also in the middle of a drought... It's also a particularly topical report because despite that period of extremely dry weather in California, Death Valley did actually have a massive flood um, just in the, in the last few days, um, which has washed away a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, 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 the, the a lot of the infrastructure in the valley. The roadways and so forth have now become um, unusable, and it tells a, a wider story about climate change. In that, one of the things that we can expect it to do is to by causing more water to evaporate, um, we get. This this combination of extreme dryness at, at times, but because there is so much more water carried in the atmosphere, when the circumstances are right, there's so much more of it to dump on us, um, and that's essential feature of the of, of the increased risk of extreme weather that. Um, that scientists have been warning about for for many years now. Yeah, Uh, and of course that also impacts on agriculture and crop failure, and The Guardian has a piece about this. Yes, The Guardian is warning that um, we may be looking at uh, some crop failures specifically in the UK. Um, There's certainly already been quite a number of anecdotal reports of um, uh, of, of farmers uh, indicating that their their crops are performing very disappointingly, um, and the Guardian's report is suggesting that that it's more than that. It's likely it could well turn out to be more than just anecdote. We could really see significant declines in the in the crop of in in, in the crops we're getting of of some um, arable farm produce later on in the year. But of course, when we look at supply, particularly to supermarkets, what we're also seeing is that a there's a lack of pickers. A lot of fruit mm. and veg is staying in the ground because there is nobody, because of Brexit, yeah. probably, to, to to pick those crops. And then, of course, there are supply chain problems. There are lorries that are mm-hmm. sitting at, at, at Dover and Calais, not able to get through. Uh, there are not enough drivers to bring that produce. Certainly in my local supermarket, mm-hmm. there are huge gaps on the shelves. Yes, and I, I, I'd say the same thing is true of my um, local supermarket, um, it's certainly true that that, that all these factors um, have disrupted the supply of, of of food around the UK. We've also got the additional problem, obviously, of um, of prices, which is driven by global supply questions as well, and the, the disruption to, especially to the international uh, supply of of wheat from as a result of the um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Brexit, in the case of the UK, is does seem to be an aggravating factor for precisely those reasons you mentioned: labour supply issues and disruption at the border. Mm. You know, I, I just look back and having lived in Zimbabwe where we saw this happening very, very slowly, you saw little shortages in supermarkets mm. and then it's 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 that, that frog on a stove anecdote, you know, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. where it slowly boils, you don't realise you're in boiling water until it's too late to jump out. And I feel that that's what's happening in this country, that we're sleepwalking into this, this awful situation and nobody realises quite where it might go. 
Well, I suppose that that's theoretically possible. Um, I mean, you say nobody knows where it might go. Um, certainly the the mainstream view is that in terms of the quantity of food supply uh, in the UK um, we'll have enough but some of it's but it's going to be very expensive um, for some types of food are are very expensive and that will create real problems for households on low incomes especially combined with the fact that energy has got a lot more expensive and um, and it is pretty clear that some people are going to have to face some difficult choices between heating and eating over the course of the winter. Absolutely. And of course, uh, the FT has a, a piece about uh, Spain building a gas pipeline to mm. France to ease Western Europe's dependence on Russia because that is at the heart of this energy crisis. Yes, Spain, incidentally, is not actually a significant gas producer at all, but it does get a lot of gas coming by pipeline from Algeria, also has large liquefied natural gas terminals. This is the one the alternative to pipelines for transporting gas is putting is is, um, is liquefying it and putting it on ships. Um, so the the idea there is that by by improving the interconnectivity of the European continent in terms of gas, um, it becomes easier to get gas from perhaps Algeria or from stuff that's coming from further afield that's arriving at terminals at Spanish ports, getting it to the rest of Europe. Um, but, you know, it doesn't... I don't think it, it might help, but I think it's beyond doubt that Europe is facing a very difficult period in terms of its um, uh, it, its energy relationship with Russia. And um, one of the papers, I think it was the international edition of the New York Times, actually has an editorial warning, uh, 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 an opinion piece on the front page, warning about the severity of the energy crisis that Europe is looking at because of this relationship with Russia. Mm. And of course, it's very evident here in, in the UK where we have a, a leadership contest on Ongoing. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the big issues are not being addressed because everybody is focused on this leadership contest, which comes down in the end, it seems, to cost of living and to tax. Uh, the two, uh, the, 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 the two uh, contenders, uh, mm -hmm. Rishi Sunak yeah. and, and Liz Truss, have very different ideas on, on how this should work. I know that economics yeah. is your, your USP and maybe you could just, just outline their, their, their different viewpoints on this. Well, Liz Truss has been very keen about the idea of cutting taxes and doing it quickly. Uh, the idea being that it, her, her idea being that this would help to um, deal or at least ameliorate the, the cost of living crisis. Um, Rishi Sunak is, for various reasons, it's very difficult for him to go down that, that path because he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister, um, who raised some taxes to deal with the um, to deal with the weakness there is in the in the government finances, and he has been suggesting, um, and some of his supporters have been suggesting that actually cutting taxes could aggravate the cost of living crisis by um, by boosting inflation. I think the counterpart, the, the the counter argument to that, I suppose, is that um, the Bank of England, if it really thinks that there's an excessive boost to demand, will push interest rates up higher. But that's going to generate problems as well for people um, for people with mortgages. Um, paying higher interest rates on those mortgages. So, yes, the cost of living crisis is very much central to the Conservative leadership debate here. Um, and that seems to be the, the core of the, um, the, the difference between the, um, the two candidates. Um, I, I don't see them, frankly, settling, re resolving it. It's, going, it's the kind of thing that 
I mean, although this is an issue that is undoubtedly there are things that the government can do to mitigate it. There really is a genuine global dimension to it coming from this, this upward pressure on, um, on energy and food prices, which owes a lot to what's happening in, um, in Ukraine, um, and also the persistent supply chain disruptions. Um, and to the extent that, um, they, that they are, in this country at least, aggravated by Brexit. That's not something that, that either of these two candidates are inclined to confront. Both of them very much um, are, are, um, are, are playing on the idea of, of, of the opportunities of Brexit rather than the problems that it might have brought in its wake. Andrew, is there anything light? Um, well, <laughs> there is a story that I mean, I certainly wouldn't call it light. In some ways, it's pretty, pretty. Um, some of the thrust of it is pretty grim, but um, uh, but there certainly is, I think, a very uplifting dimension to it. And that's about girl. Sorry, in the Guardian about girls' education in Afghanistan. Um, now that they're reporting a lot of schools, despite all the, the the restrictions put on girls' education by the Taliban, are going ahead and doing it. There are real risks involved, of course, and there are stresses um, for the girls themselves. Um, and, and sometimes if Taliban inspectors are seen coming, uh, they have to run and hide. Um, but nonetheless, the, this, this article is reporting a lot of initiatives across the country um, in various different forms, improvised um, ways of, of trying, to, trying to address this issue. But there are, despite all the very severe problems, significant efforts being made to, to keep girls' education going. Enormously difficult, but simply the fact that people are willing, are determined to try and keep this going, I find, um, as I say, rather uplifting. Fantastic. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. That was Andrew Walker. It wasn't quite the unicorn on a bicycle story that I was looking for. No, I don't think. I'm afraid I didn't find one of those today. <laughs> but luckily, we have our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with his take on the last seven days. We learned this week that demanding that the FBI start feeling the collars of allegedly malfeasant politicians... So crooked Hillary, wait, crooked that you should lock her up, I'll tell you. ...is all fun and games until the feds turn up on the doorstep of your ghastly Florida gin palace equipped with a warrant and a few questions pertaining to classified material that you may have trousered before your famously tiny fingers were prized from the Oval Office doorframe. Tonight, there are new details about the unprecedented FBI search of former President Donald Trump's Florida home. What we're learning... Hey, that's our catchphrase. We also learned that a good many senior figures in Donald Trump's Republican Party, which once upon a time was ostentatiously keen on law and order, were now all aboard the defund the police bandwagon. This is a wake-up call for those in Congress to be able to use the tools at their disposal to defund the FBI... And we learned, or really in this instance supposed, that Trump must be absolutely furious with whichever idiot handpicked the current FBI director, Christopher Wray. We have breaking news from the White House where President Trump has found a replacement for fired FBI director James Comey. The president tweeted minutes ago, I will be nominating Christopher A. Wray, a man of impeccable credentials, to be the new director. You can't get the staff, and hell itself can hath 
little fury like Trump's rage at whichever clown signed off on the amendment to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act which made the mishandling of classified documents a felony. This became law in... Let's see, 2018, when the president, let's see now, was... <coughs> hmm. We further learned that Trump was having one of those weeks where you just can't get a lot of golf played. Come on, where's our golf noise? We learned that Trump was also obliged to present himself to New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who had notes about the conduct of certain aspects of the Trump Organization's business. Trump, we learned, availed himself repeatedly of the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which, broadly speaking, entitles a citizen to keep their yap shut if they feel that opening it might drop them in the... Soap. But we learned that those upstanding Americans who believe that pleading the Fifth Amendment is a shabby ruse employed only by the obviously guilty do have one prominent ally. The mob takes the Fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? When you have your staff taking the Fifth Amendment, taking the Fifth so they're not prosecuted, when you have the man that set up the illegal server taking the Fifth, I think it's disgraceful. Have you seen what's going on in front of Congress? Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Horrible. Horrible. Do we have a sizzling sausage sort of effect somewhere? Outstanding, because in semi-related news and at least in what seems like kind of a metaphor for 21st century American conservatism generally, we learned that the appetite of 21st century American conservatives for getting performatively enraged about things which could not possibly matter less is very nearly as large as the appetite of 21st century American conservatives for the pitifully obvious grift of a career conman. Champagne satire there. We learned that the popular US restaurant chain Cracker Barrel, which makes much of its good old-fashioned down-home southern country shtick, had added to its menus a vegan sausage. You know it. Actually, remember that ironically aghast chorus about that MP Will Quince resigning that you said we'd never get any further use out of? Let's have that again, but with the producer sighing vegan sausage over every Will Quince. No. Vegan sausage. No. Vegan sausage. Vegan sausage. No. Vegan sausage. Vegan sausage. Vegan sausage. What are we going to do? Surely not. We learned that the meat-free banger had been interpreted by a voluble sector of Cracker Barrel's customer base and or angry morons on the internet as something between an affront and a heresy, on par with compelling all patrons prior to ploughing into their bacon and egg hash brown casserole, an actual Cracker Barrel menu item, we do our research, submit to a gay wedding and a chorus of the red flag. Was that really the red flag with a high-energy beat underneath it? More champagne sound effects. 
Anyway, we learned that loads of people were, as a consequence of the vegan sausage, which, to reiterate, will just be there as an option, no one's going to make you eat it, vowing to boycott Cracker Barrel from here on. We also learned, or at any rate imagined, that some indeed are planning instead to import German sausage in bulk in big crates, which is very much a worst-case scenario. And we learned, though to be honest, should as a species have figured this out already, that climbing into zoo enclosures is an unclever idea. And we learned further that it may be unclever for reasons even beyond the obvious ones of getting bitten, arrested and deservedly ridiculed for the rest of one's mortal allotment by one's fellow citizens. We learned that such misadventures also incur the risk of herpes. <laughs> We learned this thanks to a miscreant, if not indeed an outright scofflaw, who climbed into the snow monkey enclosure of Tasmania Zoo in the settlement of Launceston. We learned from subsequent statements from the zoo that the monkeys are absolutely riddled with herpes, of a variety which doesn't bother monkeys overmuch, but may be actually fatal in humans. Oh no. And we learned that contagious macaques may be the least of Launceston's problems, as we learned that the enclosure Clamberer had undertaken his raid in a bid to retrieve coins flung into the monkey's pond by zoo patrons. So we learned that Launcestonians have yet to learn that monkeys will basically just do monkey stuff for free, because they're monkeys. And we learned how incredibly annoying it is that Tasmania Zoo is in Launceston, not Devonport, because then we could have faded out on this song with an absolutely fantastic joke about monkey gone to Devonport. But you can't win every week. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Miller. Many thanks to our man from Wagga Wagga. That was Andrew Muller, and he brings this edition of Monocle on Saturday to a close. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>